Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review, the show about the musicians we're obsessed with and the albums you need to know right now. I'm Pooja Patel, the editor-in-chief, and today we're jumping into Taylor Swift's Midnights. It's her 10th studio album, and it came with, in Taylor's own words, a quote-unquote, special, very chaotic surprise, which could really mean anything. She spent the last few years re-recording all of her earlier work after the sale of her masters to Scooter Braun in 2019. And in 2020, her albums Folklore and Evermore showed her shifting towards an indie sound and even some of her country roots. Ahead of the release of Midnight's, Taylor teased that we would get a peek into her terrors and her sweet dreams. And we'll get into all of it with Pitchfork senior editor Anna Gatza and staff writer Quinn Moreland in just a minute. I've got Pitchfork senior editor Anna Gatza and staff writer Quinn Moreland here with me. Hello, friends. Hello. Hello. <laughs> so we gave Midnight's a seven, which was a little bit higher than Reputation and a little bit lower than Lover, which is, I think, spot on because this felt like a bunch of B-sides. Um, but it was also a score that kind of universally everyone was like, yep, it's a seven. A seven is a perfectly fine score. A seven is so respectable. Someone asked if I will be re-listening to the album after the review. And yes, maybe not in full, but I Yes, but I will be skipping tracks seven through 11. Yes. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. But that said, what were your expectations and kind of what did the anticipation of a new Taylor Swift album, what did you think was coming, Quinn? What she claimed would be the theme immediately set the tone in my mind, which was... Mm you know, this idea of midnights. And she said, it was a collection of music written in the middle of the night, a journey through terrors and sweet dreams, <laughs> the stories of 13 sleepless nights scattered throughout my life. What a tongue twister. Thrilling, so, exciting. Yeah, there was this like moodiness of like, okay, we're still going to get that like inward looking Taylor, like she's a little haunted, like that's really intriguing. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think there was following Folklore and Evermore, maybe still the expectation that she would be doing something a little bit more subdued, Mm -hmm. especially with this aesthetic that she started revealing through her like TikTok Midnight Mayhem song title reveals, which was really, really chaotic indeed. Um, Can you explain that a little more? Because every Taylor Swift rollout kind of has a setup to it. Right. Like she's trying to make you understand the release before it comes out. She does a lot of legwork on that front. Yeah. She would release these videos like one every evening, I guess, in the middle of the night called Midnight's Mayhem with me, I think. And uh, 
they were set in this like wood paneled room and she was wearing, you know, whatever little cozy outfit and she had a bingo ball thing <laughs> that she would crank and one of the like the ball that came out would reveal like a new song title and she had this like very unhinged energy about it like it seemed like she was really leaning into the ridiculousness of it like staring mm-hmm. into the camera like like an unbroken gaze and mm-hmm. like it seemed like she maybe hadn't slept which was great like <laughs> from that i think i expected more of a, a kind of 70s energy perhaps of like with the wood paneling and we thought she was going to be doing soft rock 70s soft rock with like with those polyester collars that yes. are really long and pointy yes mm-hmm. and oh how I wish. <laughs> I would love to hear that. I think that we all kind of were stunned <laughs> when we heard the release. I've been very busy with like other parts of my job, so I had not really been following super closely the rollout. And there wasn't a single for this album, which is unusual for a Taylor Swift album rollout pre-folklore anyway. There was always used to be a big lead single, and this album did not have one. And my first thought when I put it on and heard the first two notes was Jack Antonoff. (laughs) (laughs) There he is. Um, I listened to it in bed and was pretty, pretty surprised. But I think I was immediately like, what did I get myself into? (laughs) Like, this is not what I had built up in my mind. Mm. Instead of maybe the more vintage sound we expected, it was like vintage 2010s. (laughs) Uh, so it was immediately like, yeah, having to reevaluate all expectations, which I mean, frankly, like, you know, good for her. She always keeps people at the edge of their seat. Let's talk about the theme at the crux of this thing, right? So this is about 13 sleepless nights in her life. Obviously, pointedly about reflection, about nostalgia, about like excavating some sort of feeling, which is really, really exciting as a concept to me, because this is one of the like great diaristic songwriters of our time, especially, I mean, at least in pop music. What is revealed on this album? She really likes Joe Alwyn that much. (laughs) She likes him because he doesn't talk too much. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. Well, she kind of one of the few things she said before the release was that she'd be digging into like things like self loathing, which I was Mm -hmm. like, sign me up. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love that. The things that she seems caught up with include like her journey from like feeling like an awkward outsider teen with these big ambitions who, you know, worked her way to the top only to find that it wasn't the fairy tale she thought and her fairy tale romances have all been flawed. And there's lots of goblins and gremlins Mm -hmm. in this storybook. It's a lot about love, again, as is her tendency, but she approaches it, several of the songs, as Anna suggested, really come from this newfound, like, sense of stability with this current relationship she's in. And some of the songs were just those, like, (laughs) fun Taylor Swift pop songs, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. The best song of the Midnight's era is Would Have, Could Have, Should Have, which is one of the songs she worked with Aaron Desner on. It appears on the 3 a.m. edition. Would have, could have, should have If I'd only played it safe I would have stayed on my knees And I damn sure never would have danced with the devil At 19 And the gods on the truth is that the pain was heaven it is a continuation 
spiritually, I suppose, of her song Dear John, which is about John Mayer and their relationship when she was 19 and he was considerably older. And not only the heartbreak from that, but the uh, the violation and the manipulation and just she writes about it on Dear John from a place of anger, but more, I think, of maybe sadness or she still felt like very in the thick of it. And with this song, she comes back and is like, it just feels so sharp and so so direct, even without naming him. It's so great. It has so much momentum and like emotion behind it and storytelling underlying it. And it ties into the Taylor Swift lore. Mm-hmm. That song, to me, it should have been a bigger part of the record. And I understand why it's not, because it's a different producer and a different sound. But... Wow, it's a little frustrating to see some of her best material in the bonus tracks like that. It would not have sonically fit with the Midnight's Antonoff vision. What was the Midnight's Jack Antonoff vision? Yeah, so a song like that kind of suggests of like, huh, like what could have been? What what would have, could have, should have been, I believe Anna <laughs> put in one of my notes very uh, wonderfully. Everyone loves to work with Jack Antonoff. And yes. he seems like a super friendly guy. No one who knows him personally has anything bad to say about him. Yes. That's so valuable because we all know how many in the history of pop music, how many producers are abusive or controlling or literally Phil Spector. And, <laughs> you know, what a relief to have one who seems like a genuinely all around nice guy. Yeah. If only he didn't produce every pop album for the last five years. The thing is with Jack, every time we say Jack Antonoff drink. I'll take a sip of my coffee. Drink. (laughs) This is not an emperor's new clothes situation, right? Like, this is a person who has shown that he can make incredible pop music with songwriters who are of, like, the indie diaspora, you know? And, like, you know, melodrama, you take Lana Del Rey, you take, like, any number of musicians who have made incredible music, including Taylor Swift. And, like, we know that Jack Antonoff can do this. I think that the reverse is happening where now people are just leaning too hard on him. Taylor Swift made this album as well. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> And Taylor Swift decided you know, who would make it with her. <laughs> I think the big standout for all of us was Antihero. It's me. Well, it is the song that she chose to lead with, which mm-hmm. is a statement because it's the song where she most digs into the idea of herself, this Taylor Swift persona. She acknowledges that she has never really, quote unquote, gotten it in some ways, that she's the antihero, which I don't think she's the antihero anymore. I don't think she's the heroine or the hero, right? but she's not the antihero that she perhaps once was. But she does acknowledge also these feelings of, you know, when you're this huge celebrity, you're never really going to be able to be normal. Yeah. But she delivered it through this ridiculous pop song that has this insane final act twist, like out of nowhere, (laughs) where she imagines this future in which her daughter-in-law kills her for her money. And she gets the last laugh from hell, which I thought was incredible. I have a great (laughs) selfie of me listening to that song and just looking like I'd been slapped in the face because it was so shocking. 
I also feel like the genius of this song. I'm going to read the, those lines, which I think are going to be the standout and the deep quotables of the next year. Sometimes I feel like everybody's a sexy baby and I'm a monster on a hill, which who who can relate? I certainly can. Too big to hang out, slowly lurching towards your favorite city, pierced through the heart but never killed. Did you hear my covert narcissism? I disguise it as altruism, like some kind of congressman. <laughs> like... Yeah. Perfect 2022 <laughs> pop verse. Let's break it down first. Sexy Baby. Everyone was like, that's a 30 Rock reference. I feel like Sexy Baby, 30 Rock did not invent Sexy Baby. I'm going to die on that hill. <laughs> I'm going to be the monster dying on that hill. Okay, who invented Sexy Baby? Can we, we need to track down the origin of Sexy Baby. I don't know about that exact phrase, but I feel like you could bring it back to like kinder horror. Like, I don't know. The cutesy woman being infantilized is mm-hmm. like nothing new or mm-hmm. women using like sexy innocence as like coyness is nothing new. But one of the lines that's so heartbreaking to me is the too big to hang out slowly lurching toward your favorite city. Like that's an incredible word choice, but also like the pop star, the celebrity not having a real sense of place mm-hmm. and just always kind of being in transit, like stopping by for a night to entertain and then... Mm-hmm. lurching away. <laughs> I read something recently that was about a local celebrity. It was not about someone truly <laughs> super famous, but they were describing this person walk into a room and they were like, you know, Taylor Swift couldn't have made a bigger impression when she walked into the room. And so she is the archetype of a person who takes up all the oxygen. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear her say, like, too big to hang out, I just think of, like, how sad that is. You can't go to any bar anywhere. It made me feel bad for her, which is not something I necessarily want to say about, like, a celebrity. Pity me. This is so sad. I'm the most famous person on the planet. But, <laughs> you know, in the music video, as that verse is playing, there is a group of primarily people of color at a dinner party. And she does. She's like an outsized, like, giant character version of herself who walks into the dinner party and everybody flees, like, <laughs> runs screaming. <laughs> With all of the subtext of some of the lines here, I kind of was like, are you also making commentary on, like, your place in pop culture in 2022? You know? <laughs> like, yeah, like who your audience is and who your audience isn't. I wouldn't put it past her to be thinking on that level. Yeah. I would hope she's able to think about it on that level. I think considering so much of the flack she's gotten, I hope she'd be able to have processed some of that in a healthy way. But at the same time, she does say she'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. Uh You know who can't look in the mirror? Like a vampire? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I think every time. We keep quoting this line about I'll stare directly in the sun, but never in the mirror. In full sincerity, as if it is a true, you know, I'm I'm starting with the man in the mirror kind of reference. I think she's talking about I feel like an emotional vampire. Wow. Yeah. Quinn, what was another highlight for you? Ooh, another highlight for me was uh, You're On Your Own Kid, which is one of her famous track fives, which in Taylor Swift lore are like the most emotional songs. Have been. 
the plot is essentially like she's this young person with an unrequited love and she she takes that energy and goes and pulls up in her room and writes these songs that allow her to achieve her dreams and when she gets to this place of success doesn't feel great mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like she says I gave my blood sweat and tears for this I hosted parties and starved my body like I'd be saved by a perfect kiss which I think is a really elegant way of acknowledging like her struggles with disordered eating that she opened up about mm-hmm. but also acknowledging this like fairy tale vision that has been so much a part of her her early material it's like she smashes the mirror and i just thought it was a really great example of like what taylor swift does best she's such a good storyteller she is able to like cram these entire arcs into songs sometimes they're heavy-handed Sometimes, like in this one, they hint at just like this great, profound depth. My favorite little moment on the album and something that stood out to me on my very first listen walking around my neighborhood was the first verse of Sweet Nothings and how the first line of this song is just, I spy with my little tired eye. I spy with my little tired eye, tiny as a firefly, a pebble that we picked up last July. Down deep inside your pocket, we almost forgot it. Does it ever miss Wicklow sometimes? <laughs> and you could put anything after that. You have no idea where we're going. And it's just like one line at a time. She just sort of reveals something new with each one. And you feel, and the way the arrangement of the song is, you feel like you're just sort of tumbling into the story. It's like you just opened the novel and you're hooked from the first page and like, That also, to me, is what Taylor Swift does best. She's so good at storytelling. And I would almost rather have these great stories than the big hooks, which is why Folklore and Evermore appeal to me so much. I also love in this song when she says industry disruptors and soul deconstructors (laughs) and smooth-talking hucksters out-glad-handing each other. (laughs) I like to imagine someone else out there listening to this album for the first time and they hear Taylor Swift say industry disruptors and they think that's me finally some recognition <laughs> yeah oh god <laughs> that's me I'm also the anti-hero <laughs> so there's still so much for us to talk about so let's take a quick break and then we'll dive back in in just a minute Ever wanted to go inside the Met Gala? I'm Cho Minardi, and this week on The Run Through Vogue, we take you inside the world's most exclusive and glamorous party. We'll talk about the best looks from the red carpet and everything that happened after. Listen to The Run Through with Vogue wherever you get your podcasts. I want to talk a little bit about the sound of this album. I think that it felt like a cohesive project, which everyone was applauding, but also for something that felt very kind of reflective and referential and pointedly looking back. What were you hearing on this album that felt like, oh yeah, this was Taylor in her this era, her lover era, her reputation era, you know? You maybe would expect this album to feel like an evolution of the folklore period, but to me it feels almost like a time warp 
where we're zooming back to like 2019 and even 2017 mm-hmm. with Reputation and sort of revisiting those sounds. But yeah, like as if you had were asleep while you were doing it because it is so much more <laughs> muted and the hooks are not as big and there's certainly nothing as loud or as high contrast as the songs on Reputation. It feels much more subdued or like I mean a classic Taylor aesthetic is that like old Polaroid photo yes. kind of sound mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of like a halo on it because it didn't, you know, maybe it wasn't like totally developed. <laughs> From the album cover with her blue eyeshadow and the lighter, I thought maybe she'd be trying to go for this more like quote unquote indie sound. Indie sleaze, it's back. Yeah, I thought I was a little, I was a little concerned. <laughs> like, uh oh, where are we going with this? <laughs> the things that kept coming up for me, it it's so weird to like call these even like potential influences because they are her contemporaries essentially. But I couldn't help but think back to like Lord's Pure Heroine, Take Care by Drake, even mm-hmm. like the early Weekend albums. Just these. Maybe a little minimalist, but like heavier rumbling like production that really allowed the the vocalist's voice to come to the forefront. It reminded me a little bit of Purity Ring, uh-huh. <laughs> which made me wonder if Taylor Swift watches Search Party because then she cast John Early in her video for Antihero. Yeah. But it seemed like a lot of those influences were really standing out to me. That she was more interested in, like, this mood. Right. How do you convey an emotion or a feeling through, like, the production in a more subdued way than she has in the past or a more electronic way? The ultimate Drake aesthetic of just I'm home alone, it's late at night, and the house is really, 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 really big. (laughs) I mean, I think it's funny how that wooziness or that kind of, like, big mood energy translates into the vocals, right? Like, you get the queen of moody, hazy vocals, Lana Del Rey, onto a song to play backup singer on a song about snow on the beach. Now it's like snow at the beach, weird but fucking beautiful, flying in a dream, stars by the pocket full, you wanting me tonight feels impossible, but it's coming down, no sound, it's all around like snow. Um, which ends up kind of sounding like fog to me. And I don't mean that as a compliment, to be clear. <laughs> that's, that's what we called it in the review. Yeah. We put fog in the review because it does just feel like the whole place is foggy and there's no super distinct moments. Mm-hmm. And there's not a standout moment really in the production to me. Yeah. I'm trying to imagine what the instrumental version of this album would sound like. And I wouldn't be that interesting. She also did a lot of kind of, I mean, interesting, depending on how you're looking at it, voice modulation. Yes. Um, One of my least favorite parts on that album is the song Midnight Rain when she says he wanted it comfortable and I wanted the pain, but it's like dropped an octave and bloated out as if it's like on scissor, you know, like it's very of an era. He wanted a comfortable, I wanted the pain. He wanted a pride, I was making my own name. Chasing that fame, he stayed the same. All of me changed like midnight. 
I loved that song. I listened to it like <laughs> no. 20 times in a row. No. No, I like it too. Sorry, Pooja, we oh, disagree no. on this. <laughs> no. It's the yeah. there are no there's no lyrical clunkers in that song, so there's no stopping points mm-hmm. to me. And I know oh, what you God. mean that the vocal the vocal effect is not original. The vocal effect yeah. sounds kind of dated at this point in time and like certainly not the most cutting edge evolution of that sound. But I don't mind it. Why do why do you like that song? Maybe even more so than on other albums for me. Her up talk really stood out on mm-hmm. this one. And I liked how that leaned into it excessively, perhaps. But um, to me, like while writing this review, that song really became like there's a few songs that I just can write to really easily, like several Shawn Mendes songs. I just put them on repeat and just... I always forget you're the quiet Shawn Mendes stand. Yeah, I just want the best for him. Shawn, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> let me interview you. Um, but that song really, I don't know, it it felt cohesive in what it was going for. Let's say that. Oh my God. I felt like it could have been written by literally anyone. <laughs> well, I don't disagree with you there, I will say. Can we talk about some of these songwriting choices? We should talk yes. about the Rain, Rain, pain. <laughs> <laughs> I do like nonchalant Taylor Swift, right? Like mm-hmm. Taylor Swift in blank space is the Taylor Swift pop star that I crave. The person who is like self-aware enough to understand when she's being a little bit much and also is writing someone off or something off. And the idea of karma, right? Like you're going to get what's coming to you, like live and let live. That whole idea and being very like, breezy about how life is hard and you just gotta like deal with what you can deal with and move right along great idea great idea for taylor swift to write about as someone who is like both villainized and infantilized all the time right that said (laughs) i was just watching the lyric video and it's like disneyified the lyric videos are these starry skies with like a Tinkerbell-like dust trail spelling out lyrics or circling lyrics. And one of these dust trails moves into the shape of a woman in lotus position, like meditating (laughs) as as Taylor Swift is singing like, Karma (laughs) is my boyfriend. That song is going to bang. That song is going to be huge. That song is going to be synced to everything. The TikTok girlies are going to do like, this is what I did to my ex, you know. So that song is going to bang. I just wish that the writing was a little bit sharper, mm-hmm. you know. And Taylor is really clever. Like, I think that we th- expect so much of her because we think she's very smart. In that song, I feel like she's condescending to me. If you look at me and say me and karma vibe like that, I can't like. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. But it will, um, it will be a big hit. And I notice also mm-hmm. that it is one of the least narrative driven or least specific songs on this album. And you can imagine that it is Taylor talking to Kanye West in 2016 or something. But there's mm-hmm. no yeah. direct signals of that. And so it is a much easier self-insert for the listener. And that's part of right. what is going to make it like, you know, go off in the bar class remix. Yeah, I think people people are ready to be like, karma is my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Karma is a cat 
purring in my lap. <laughs> oh, boy. This is one of these songs, too, where I feel like the theme is not as strong as it could have been. And it's always frustrating to get a concept album and then they lose track of the concept halfway mm. through. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Let's bring it back to the the lack of midnights on here. At mm. one point while I was working on a draft, I tried to go through and see if she brings up the theme of midnights even loosely. I'd say only like maybe half the songs did. A few of them, like the uh, aforementioned Midnight Rain, mention it very explicitly. Right. If the idea is that these are midnights from periods of her life, like one of the few things that I noticed is like you do kind of hear different versions of existential crisis. Mm -hmm. Like you hear, as you pointed out in your review, like the opening song is about being a woman in your early to mid 30s who is either seen as a wife or a girlfriend or like what what do you become once you're in your 30s that sounds like a contemporary existential crisis for her yeah but then i feel like the one kind of thing that i gave to her was like you know on that song vigilante shit which i hate also hate that song <laughs> she does that little vocal tick where she's like don't get sad get even which sounds like a throwback to blank space right like it sounds to me like oh my god who is she <laughs> so i'm like is this her blank space but grown up and now she's like not only i'll break up with you but i will take my revenge there's certain like kind of existential crisis that have been like modernized for her and like that spiral of thought still relates to midnight it does and i mean not to come off like a creep, but I've definitely laid in bed at night thinking about revenge, <laughs> wishing, <Yeah. laughs> wishing ill on my uh, those who've done me wrong. Wow, this is very intense. <laughs> yeah, no, but I mean, I'm like, I think maybe the confusion comes because they are conveyed in the sound that is so far from the idea of midnights, which I think in her catalog kind of comes back to this idea of like possibility almost, like Mm -hmm. In the songs where she does mention midnights, it's like this thing yeah. of either like mysteriousness or like possibility or like midnight, Hope. you come and pick yeah. me up, no headlights. That's I the believe, one I was trying to think of in style. style. Midnight, yeah. midnight, no headlights. Mm -hmm. And like, I love style so much. The opening notes of that song, even if I had never heard it in my life, that is the sound of like a hot guy driving up in a car with yeah. the lights off. <laughs> it sounds just like it. What are we what are we hopeful for? What do we want from Taylor next? Well, for Lover, she had the big uh, yeah, Loverfest, a planned worldwide concert tour, which ended up not happening because of COVID. And oh, then Oh, I forgot about this. Yeah, and then This she, was this was the Taylor Swift tour scheduled to begin April 5th, 2020 and conclude on August 1st, 2020. She has now 5 albums that yeah, she needs to tour and I think she probably felt like she needed a pop album. I think it would be very natural for her to feel that while Folklore and Evermore are incredible, those songs are maybe not the ones that are most likely to light up an arena. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're not really intended for that. They were the songs that she wrote you know, during the time period that her tour was canceled and people were staying indoors. They're also in the shark-like pace of pop music. Those albums are now two years old. By next year, they'll be three years old. In my eyes, it's a very natural decision for Taylor to say, I need some pop hits and I need to return to the sound that is like more associated with my history as I presumably plan my next big concert tour. Well, on that note, 
here's a question for you. What is the next pop record that you're actually excited about? Rihanna. Whenever Scissors album. Oh, yes. Appears. Yeah, two long delayed <laughs> artists that we've just been sitting here patiently waiting for. I'm curious about the next Frank Ocean album, I suppose. Yes, that could happen anytime. To that end, like, bless Taylor Swift for continuing to release new music with a clip as some of our biggest pop stars yes. are in hiding, you know? I almost want her to stop trying so hard. You don't have to put out an album every two years. Thanks, Quinn, and thanks, Anna, for coming on. This was fun. Thanks, Peja. Yes, thank you. <laughs> See you at midnight. <laughs> The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. Thanks to Anna Gatza and Quinn Moreland. You can follow Anna on Twitter at TweeAsFuck and Quinn at Quinn Moreland. You can also read Quinn's review of Midnight's at Pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenolosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Ryan Domble is our showrunner. Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. I'm Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening. I'm Nomi Fry, and this week on Critics at Large, we're talking about the delights and shortcomings of the new movie Challengers. It starred Zendaya at the center of a tennis triangle and a very steamy love triangle. Who are her loyalties to? Will she be tempted by the other one? How do these guys reckon their professional playing ambition with their romantic and sexual feelings about this mysterious woman? And such we have it. We have a conflict between three people in a game meant for two. Is it a sports movie or a sex movie? Find out on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. New episodes drop every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.